Welcome to another edition of Global Investment Leaders. Welcome to Rosemont's Global Investment Leaders Podcast. I'm Brad Mook, Managing Director at Rosemont, and I'm pleased to host another episode in our How They Did It subseries. My guest on this episode is Todd Bridell, the CEO and CIO of Center Square Investment Management, an employee-owned real estate firm based outside Philadelphia with over $14 billion in equity capital under management. I've known Todd for about 14 years, initially through research and allocation work I did at SEI that resulted in a mandate for Center Square. Center Square is a great example of a firm that built itself organically into a successful specialist investment boutique. Today, the firm manages money for a range of institutional investors through a variety of public and private real estate strategies, and it's jointly owned by employees and its private equity partner, Lovell Minnick. Over its history, which dates back to 1987, it has navigated both functional and ownership succession through a sale of the firm, a management buyout, and rebranding. Todd and I discussed that journey, and Todd shares lots of insight into key decisions around common management and ownership dilemmas. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, hey, Todd, thanks for joining me today. I'm happy to have you with us. Brad, thank you for having me today. So we've known each other, I don't know, probably 10 or 15 years, and principally through my work at SEI and the work your firm did for us uh, managing domestic reportfolios in the SEI manager, multi-manager funds. And I've always enjoyed working with your firm and speaking with you about the firm. And I think there's a lot that other investment leaders and participants can learn from your experiences and your perspectives. So thanks for being willing to hop on with me today and share some of that story. Excited to do so, Brad. Thank you. So I do, I want to roll the clock back and look at the firm's evolution, but let's start with where Center Square is today. Can you provide a little context and describe what Center Square looks like and, and what it does? Yeah, sure. Um, so Center Square today is a investment manager in global real estate investing. Um, we, we execute uh, across the public-private debt and equity spaces, um, both domestically and globally. But we're not all things to all people, right? So there's some things that we don't do. Um, one of the largest areas of our business, uh, it's really a scaled strategy for us, uh, is on the listed REIT side. Uh, and then in addition to the listed uh, REIT side, which is both global and domestic, uh, we've got private equity and private debt strategies that are domestically focused here in the U.S. Uh, we manage about 14 plus billion dollars uh, of equity capital uh, on behalf of very like-minded institutions. Uh, our team is roughly about 100 people, uh, offices in our headquarters is in Philadelphia, uh, offices in New York, uh, Los Angeles, Singapore, uh, as well as London uh, that support you know, our, our businesses either from an investment perspective or from a capital raising perspective. Um, and, you know, the, the key thing for us is, is really meeting with clients and, and really working with them to understand their objectives and trying to be a solution provider, you know, beyond just the strategy that we execute. And I think that's a, that's a key competency of ours. Uh, and we've got a lot of, of, of people who are dedicated in that area to helping clients think through how they're positioned uh, and how the market's positioned. So as we go through today, I think you'll hear me talk a lot about Center Square as a thematic investor uh, and one that, that brings a, a macro view to it, um, builds a thematic case 
uh, and then you know make sure that we have best practices all the way through execution uh, at the asset level or the individual investment level. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, and I guess as you think about your partnerships with your clients and your ability to provide solutions, it helps to have a, um, a varied product set and multiple capabilities that you can bring to the table in terms of geographies and um, what types of investment vehicles and um, part of the, the spectrum of um, debt and equity and so forth. I suspect it hasn't always been that way. I'm pretty sure it hasn't always been that way. So maybe we can roll the clock back and just talk about how the firm started, when it started, when you came aboard and what it looked like in those early days. Very, very different than, than it is today. I, I joined um, Brad in, in, uh, in 1993. I was two years out of the Wharton School, uh, a professor of mine. Uh, Scott Erdeng had founded the firm uh, in the in the late 1980s. Uh, I joined him a couple of years uh, after uh, I graduated, and the market was in the middle of the RTC uh, liquidation. Um, so that was the Resolution Trust Corporation. It was the last time, you know, maybe the second to last time uh, that uh, we had a bit of a banking crisis. And the RTC was formed to effectively provide liquidity to the savings and loans, and it was a great time to buy uh, to buy real estate. At uh, the time that I joined, we were forty million dollars of equity under management, uh, but we had, you know, very thoughtful uh, thematic uh, as to uh, investing in, in you know, certain asset classes and certain markets that had higher growth, um, and a bit of a contrarian bent to us. Um, uh, as well as a value add bet. So, you know, the firm was very different. We were managing, you know, at the time, just separate accounts. Um, and I think that's why the consultative, you know, kind of DNA of the firm exists is that when you start managing a separate account relationship and you're a small firm and you've only got a couple of those relationships, um, you really respect the importance of that relationship um, and the importance of your role uh, as a service provider and an advisor uh, to, to a client. Um, and you don't think about yourself as basically selling a strategy or selling a product. You really think of yourself in their, in their shoes. And I think that that has uh, remained consistent you know, over the past 30 plus years that I've been at the firm, you know, is taking that client first approach uh, in the way that we structure, you know, just about everything that we do. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting point. I I didn't think of it that way in terms of a firm your size today and how that DNA is created of being client first and and solutions oriented. I have a lot of conversations with folks who are thinking about starting or have recently started an investment firm, and one of the questions they always ask is, "What vehicles should we bring to market? How should we, you know, create the the product?" And I often tell them it's more important to focus on who you're, who you're going to be providing the product to because they will tell you what your firm should look like and what your vehicles should look like. And that client first mentality is less about create something and push it into the marketplace as figure out what your clients need and fill that need and help. And I think that helps with growth through time too because you'll develop your capabilities based on the demand that exists in the marketplace organically. It feels like that's what you've done at Center Square. Uh, you've had great vision and broadened the organization. We can walk through a lot of that, but but it feels like it's always been a bit client-centric. Yeah, the, you know, the, what's interesting is that it, it's really easy to look back over the past 30 plus years 
within real estate and see different product wrappers come in and out of favor. And what I mean by a product wrapper is whether it be an open-end fund or a closed-end fund or a separate account or structuring something as a joint venture or a publicly traded REIT or a non-traded REIT, these things tend to come in and out of favor. Um, and so you, you have to be thoughtful about the product wrapper. Um, because it is the attachment point between your strategy and the client. And that's, that's so it really does matter. You know, certain clients have, you know, more flexibility and fewer opinions. Some clients have very strong opinions and very little flexibility, you know, as to, to the wrapper. And so, as you mentioned, it's really important to understand, like, you know, who's, who's the core constituency, particularly if you're doing something new, right? If you're doing something new, uh, in my experience, you know, the, the build it and they will come approach is really, really, you know, fraught with, with danger. Um, and the, and the, the danger is that no one shows up. So starting with the clients and understanding where their where their limitations are, understanding their sensitivities, um, and and building some consensus amongst a core you know group of clients is really important for the product wrapper. But at the end of the day, it should really be about the strategy. Does the strategy fit the client? Are you delivering something? of value? Um, are you delivering something that the client sees as value? Um, and I will tell you that, that, that um, and this is a long-winded answer to your question, the, the approach that we take and have always taken, I think we'll always take in, in working with, let's, let's call it prospective clients, um, isn't to, to be pushing a product wrapper. It's, it's not even to push a strategy. It, it's really to understand what their needs are um, and to, to share with them the way that we see the world. Um, and to the extent that, you know, it happens to line up today, uh, that what our thematics are and the way that we're delivering strategies through a product um, makes sense for them, you know, fantastic. Um, that'll be great. And if it doesn't, that's okay too. Um, but I think we really try hard to always be authentic um, in sharing our best ideas um, to with 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 clients and prospects, including in areas that we don't service. Um, so you may routinely hear me sharing. I think this is a really terrific investment strategy, and it's not one that Center Square offers. Um, but I at least want the client to know the full range of our thinking uh, because it might be, because we, we've got a very informed view um, by being across, um, you know, APAC, uh, you know, EMEA, as well as, as the Americas um, and across, you know, 15, 20 different property types, you know, particularly from our listed side. Yeah. So. I always appreciated that, even though we were invested in Dean's domestic listed equity strategy, the insights and the investment decisions were always guided with a sense of context around what's going on in different asset classes within real estate, what's going on uh, around the world in terms of different asset classes, and, and not just understanding what's moving, but understanding where opportunities sit. And 
not that you could always take advantage of them, certainly not in our strategy because of the limitations, um, but at least understanding that context and also having some intellectual capital that we could then bring back in the house and, and try to figure out um, was always very helpful. I'm curious about your... So there's this this tug of war. You said clients have strong opinions about rappers and, and different things. I know we had views on, well, maybe here's some things that perhaps could be done better or differently, or why don't you do it this way? You have to think in terms of how do you best deliver the investment idea, what the right wrapper is for the client, and how do you how do you build and manage a business in a way that makes sense? Because if you gave every client everything they wanted, you'd be going in a million different directions. At some point, you need to to consolidate that into a, a commercial structure. Yeah. And, and you know, as, as we've gained scale, Brad, we've been able to, you know, add multiple um, vehicles, let's call them the product wrapper again, to a particular strategy. Right. So I'm looking at, uh, you know, one of our strategies today, we launched in a separate account. Um, we've now taken that through uh, with with having a second separate account. We now have two active joint venture programs that are going. Uh, we have a, uh, a very large investor that that wants to support us in a club format that will end up looking like a fund. Um, and, and so. You know, we see there being the opportunity for evolution um, over time um, to be able to, to, to grow at scale. What you can't afford to do, however, is to be, you know, a, a business of lots of small things. It's very inefficient. Um, so you can use them if you have confidence that they're going to build into something of scale. Um, but having things that, again, as I mentioned before, build it and they will come. If they don't come, then you'll have a lot of things that are small scale um, and it'll 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 really impact margins. And, you know, margins are important to maintain. Um, they're important to maintain for the health of an organization. Um, they're also very important to be able to maintain so that you can invest in growth. Um, and you can launch new new uh, new strategies into the future. Um, and so that's that's my my thoughts on on scale and platforms and it's 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 complicated it is complicated but i i think it's important to the clients that the firm be healthy so that it can invest in ideas and resources and continuing to provide the the intellectual horsepower that that they're paying for um and I, that always gets me on fee compression and you know people trying to squeeze on fees too much at some point it's it's healthy to have uh, you know, reasonable economics streaming through to support the product that you're buying. Um, I, I want to roll the clock forward a little on the product side. We'll, we'll come back and visit ownership. Um, started in public equities, brought on the private arm. How did that happen? I, you know, it feels like it was client driven to a sense that you could provide a better suite of solutions to clients by bringing that on. How did that happen? What, what was what was challenging in that? You know, was was reconfiguring management or governance or economics and incentives? You know, do you do you merge resources? Do you keep them bifurcated? How, how did you think through think that through? It's it's a, it's a terrific question, and um, and so we started actually in the private equity side, right? Oh. Originally, 
and, and, um, and, and doing the separate account thing. And, and I did that for a while. And in, in, at the end of 1994, I, I closed my last acquisition as an acquisition officer uh, in November 1994 and then launched the listed REIT business uh, in, in 1995. And I will share with you that, you know, it's, it's good to have fortune, you know, on your side, because maybe we got uh, we got a little fortunate uh, in having some good performance. But the thinking was that when we're investing in private real estate assets, you know, particularly back then, we did a lot of joint ventures. We still do joint ventures, but we also do a lot of direct real estate investing. You're underwriting real estate and you're underwriting management at, at the same time. Investing in the listed space, you know, you're underwriting real estate, you're underwriting management, but then you get the complexity of balance sheet. And, it, and, and, and obviously you get the complexity of trading and volatility and, 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 you know, things like momentum and, and different valuation characteristics. Um, but the, the, the evolution of the business, um, I think from the very beginning, once we launched the listed, the listed REIT business was to, was to make sure that we created you know, dedicated teams. And, and I, let, me, let me bring this forward because the, the, the topic of alignment and organization is really near and dear to me. Um, so today, if you looked at our organization, you'd find that our private debt team, it's 100% dedicated to, to private debt. Um, our private real estate equity team, 100% dedicated you know, to, to private real estate. Um, and our listed REIT teams are 100% dedicated. Um, but it's really important not to keep these groups siloed um, or to create misalignment of interest or create fiefdoms um, or you know, concerns about you know, who's getting you know, too few resources or who's getting too many resources. So one is the teams are dedicated. Two is that they're brought together um, on a very regular basis. It can be as, as often as multiple times a week in periods of high stress and volatility, like the beginning of COVID. Um, or it can, but the standard is basically we get together for about 90 minutes every other Friday uh, and we share what's happened in the market over the preceding two weeks. And we bring in some outside people to that, whether it be, you know, a, a PhD economist who's on our board or a former CEO of a public read or you know, the former head of a consulting firm, um, you know, at, or at, at Hamilton Lane or the former head of, of real estate investing in a public pension fund. And we just talk. That's I mean, that's it. The, the objective is to just talk through in a very structured way what we've seen over the last two weeks. Um, so that helps bring us together. The other thing is that we have subject matter experts that that effectively um, cross over uh, the investment committees that are that are uh, that we have, particularly for the private side. Um, so the investment committees uh, on our private real estate debt include someone, you know, from our private real estate equity team, and it includes someone you know who's got more of a macro view. Um, you know, coming from the, the, the REIT side or working with me on a kind of a, a, a senior investment strategist person. And the same thing is true on the, on the equity side. We've got a debt person who's on, on those. So we cross fertilize the investment committees um, in a way that hopefully brings everybody together. We do the same thing with alignment of interest, right? Where the firm is owned, and I know we'll talk about ownership and stuff like that in a minute, but, you know, ownership and carry, you know, are, are, I think appropriately mixed across the teams so that one team 
is actually rooting for the other team to win and not feeling jealous of resources. The reality is that not all of our strategies are going to be in favor at any particular point in time. And so it might it makes sense that you know those particular strategies that might be more in favor are going to get more attention. Um, and I just need to make sure that the, that the team that's running a strategy that might be a little out of favor doesn't feel bad about it. Um, and so I think we do a really good job of, of, of building you know a pretty flat organization with a lot of can-do people uh, with what I'll just refer to as um, you know a, a low ego environment where you know there's there's not a lot of disruptive influence in a negative way yeah this is a great topic I just finished a book that was very interesting called the silo effect by Jillian Tett and she provides examples of uh, where silos have gone wrong in organizations and where firms have been able to, um, t- from the outside, have been able to take advantage of firms that are overly siloed um, and kind of uh, you know go between the cracks and, and take market share. And, and also firms that have done a really good job of silo busting. And it's, it's especially for growing organizations that you know, the efficiencies that you gain through silos, the specialization that you gain through silos, but then you also get territorialism and all sorts of dysfunction. So finding that, that perfect blend, it's organization specific. It's not the same blueprint for every organization. It, it, I, I wanted to ask about your, um, your cross-hatching, cross-fertilization. I suspect you have sector analysts that provide insights to both the public and the private uh, investments. Yeah, so it, it is a, an absolute luxury that we have at Center Square to have you know, the breadth of the team that we have on the listed side of our business, you know, both domestically and, and, and uh, ex-US. And, and so we do have subject matter experts, analysts that cover one particular property, you know, you know, sector, you know, whether it be in data centers or life sciences or multifamily you know, office, industrial, et cetera. Um, and what surprises people is that we rotate coverage um, and we rotate coverage um, Typically, it's not set, but it might be a two or three year time period. Um, and what we found is that because we're a pretty flat organization, what it yields is having multiple experts um, in a room eventually, um, where you've got someone who covered the space maybe four or five years ago. Um, not a whole lot changes. This is not the technology space in real estate where innovation happens in lightning speed. Uh, it happens much more glacially. Uh, and so it is very helpful to have multiple experts in the room. And it is very, I'll give you, uh, it, it's, it's very typical that we'll bring in that subject matter expert, uh, potentially from the REIT side to opine on something that we might be doing um, on the private side. And let me give you a quick little story. Um, there's a uh, there's a publicly traded company. The first publicly traded company uh, to get into cold storage was a company called Vornado. And they had a terrible experience with it and ultimately shut it down, lost money in the effort, in the effort I, I think. Um, but it was a terrible experience. Um, ultimately, uh, another public read came along called Americold. And uh, we followed that company and we followed it for a long time. Uh, and so based on our experience with uh, Americold, we, uh, we got a call and were introduced to a privately held company uh, called Lineage Logistics um, that uh, was raising 
you know, effectively, you know, round D or E or F or I can't remember which round it was. Uh, and, and we began underwriting that private company based on the public company experience that we had. And we ultimately made an, a couple different rounds of investments uh, in lineage. Uh, and then, you know, a year or two later, uh, we ran across an opportunity um, that, you know, by, by having effectively built a campaign to look for these opportunities in private, in a private um, development opportunity for cold storage. And we made our first, you know, asset specific or property specific um, cold storage development uh, investment uh, down in, in Houston, Texas. Uh, and we brought all of that experience from the public side, all of that experience from our strategic capital group that made the investment in the private company. And we brought that down to the individual asset uh, that we ultimately uh, developed very successfully uh, down in Texas, and we're continuing to look for uh, for investments like that. And so that that evolution of taking information and then passing it to the next, you know, the next group, and then, you know, now we've got two groups with that information, and those two groups then, you know, helping to inform the third group within our organization, um, is is something that I couldn't be more proud of. Hmm. Do you follow a similar approach on geography? Geography is. Um, you know, I, I think we not necessarily no, because the, the property type of um, is, is very bespoke. We use a lot of technology to help us with geography. Um, so we've got we've, we, we have developed some very sophisticated you know, mapping programs where we, we pull in you know, the type of information that we're looking for, for a particular property or particular strategy, you know, whether it be, you know, household income or college educated people or, uh, you know, new employment growth. And, and, you know, typically are filtering uh, specific geographies based on those things, identifying target markets and then looking for sub markets. Um, so that tends to be a little bit more more technology driven. And uh, the other thing I would share with you is that, um, you know, once once the technology has kind of given us a couple, you know, a couple darts on the board, you know, we'll, what we'll end up doing then is sending a team down to a particular market. But at this point in time, we've 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 been in most markets. We've invested in, you know, probably you know, thirty five or forty of the states. It's probably going to be you know, ten or fifteen that we'll never invest in. There's just not enough, you know, there's not enough interest there. Um, but um, yeah, geography is a little bit different. Yeah, and I was thinking more on a on a macro uh, global level rather than uh, site specific and location specific within the U.S. But cultural differences from and different continents and countries can roll through and have impact in terms of real estate. Um, and and I, I was just thinking that just as somebody's perspective, overall perspective, can really be enhanced by moving around and, and looking at different asset classes or, or sectors within real estate. For example, Brad, in, in Asia is very different than the office market in Europe and very different than the office market here in the United States. Um, and, you know, I think that it's partly cultural. Um, I think it's also impacted by um, by by urban densities and commute ability um, to, to assets. But um, you know, utilization rates are highest in APAC by far, um, followed by Europe and then followed by the U.S. So there are there are stark differences uh, in the way that real estate gets utilized. But um, 
and, and at the same time, you know, pretty, pretty amazing differences in, you know, in Japan, for example, where multi-level industrial has been the norm for, you know, the past you know, 20, you know, 20 plus years. So pretty, pretty big differences um, within the real estate space. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's pivot and talk uh, about ownership, because I think that's a really interesting part of Center Square's journey. Um, through the years, and it's a topic that's near and dear to Rosemont's heart. Um, so the firm started as Erdang, and I believe sold to BNY in two thousand six. Um, what was the what did yep. that accomplish at the time? What was the reason for that, and what changed in that framework? And I think a few years after that, you became CEO. So I don't know how involved you were, but certainly it was um, proximate to your ascension to leadership. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm coming up on my 31st year at the firm. So I've kind of been there, done that, seen it. Um, so, yeah, we started off as a firm that was 100% owned by its founder. Um, and the first major evolution was sharing that ownership across, you know, another four individuals. Um, and then I think it ultimately ended up at seven or eight uh, individuals. Um, and at the time that, that uh, you know, we we engaged in a transaction uh, with the Bank of New York. We, we weren't running a process, um, but at least two of my partners were in their 60s and were looking for, you know, a liquidity event. And that liquidity event um, couldn't be financed by the remaining partners who were younger, including myself, who was the youngest partner. Um, and so when the Bank of New York um, called, um, there was some logic to the timing and there was some logic to maybe where we were, uh, you know, from a, uh, from, a, from a company, you know, from a company perspective, wanting to grow, maybe needing additional resources to be able to grow. Uh, and so uh, it was logical and, and we concluded the transaction in, in 2006. Um, and, you know, that, that, um, that experience, um, you know, I think helped solidify for me, um, you know, differences because I'd only really been at small organizations and now I'm at a large organization and I, I got a glimpse into how larger organizations work. Um, and, and, you know, frankly, uh, a, a year or two after the global financial crisis settled out, um, you know, it became clear to me that, you know, I think where my DNA is, is probably more in a, in a more uh, entrepreneurial kind of smaller firm setting um, where it's a little bit more of a roll your sleeves up, make decisions with the information that you have in front of you and you don't need to go back um, and, and, and try to fill up, you know, the rest of a, of a document with, you know, 90 to a hundred percent, you've got to rely on the available information to be, make a decision. And so, it, it made sense for us to um, uh, to, to seek a, a buyout, um, which we ultimately did uh, in uh, the beginning of 2018. And and so along the way, um, you know, effectively, you know, we we did our transaction with with BNY Mellon in 2006. Um, and my partners effectively retired at the end of their contracts, um, which, which were five-year contracts. 
Uh, I was young and younger and still excited to stay on and lead the organization. So led us through a rebranding exercise, led us through some product creation, uh, took our, our firm global, opened up our London and Singapore offices. Um, and and then ultimately, you know, recognize that, you know, perhaps a management buyout would, would, would be the best course for both the Bank of New York and, and for, for Center Square. And you, you got it done, which is remarkable. But how did did they did BNY agree with you on, you know, what Center Square should be its own entity, or did you have to claw your way out? Well, they owned 100% of the company, so they ultimately had to agree because the one thing I, I know for certain is that um, you can't force anybody to sell something to you that they don't want to sell to you. Um, and so understanding that um, from my perspective really shaped the approach that we took. Um, and I knew from the very beginning that we, we had to take a very reasoned, um, disciplined, patient, and mature approach um, in, um, in order to achieve what we wanted. Um, and we needed to make sure that, you know, that, that BNY Mellon achieved what they wanted you know, out of the transaction. You know, so there were changes that were happening you know, within the Bank of New York and I think the timing lined up well um, for us to be able to achieve what we wanted at the same time that, you know, they could achieve what, what they wanted. So nobody can force anything. Um, and, you know, we uh, I, I remember instead of thinking of it as, you know, mom and dad getting a divorce, we basically said, hey, the kids want to move out of the basement and, and using that analogy. Um, as a way of making sure that everybody understood that this is going to be a positive for everybody. Right. And did you have a sense of what did you what you wanted the other side to look like when you went into this process? Or did you just know that you wanted change, you wanted separation, independence? I'm thinking in terms of how you went about the process and you know whether you had partners on standby or you had to go out and look for a partner. How did that process work? Well, I didn't know exactly how to do it. I wasn't exactly sure that I could get the, you know, could get it done. And and I think that there was some skepticism in some of the people that I talked to that we would be able to get it done. But, um, you know, ultimately um, we ended up, um, you know, hiring uh, a banker that that frankly was recommended by Rosemont. I'm not sure that you know that mm -hmm. fact, but uh, it was a banker uh, that was recommended by by your firm. Um, and they introduced us to, uh, to, you know, about a dozen people and we had, you know, five or six of them who were very interested and we picked a group, um, you know, level minute partners that I think has been, um, an absolute uh, joy to work with and, um, couldn't, couldn't be happier with the decision that we made, but we didn't know them ahead of time. And so we were ultimately introduced through a banker. Um, but because the process took so long, um, with, uh, you know, the, the management buyout from BNY Mellon, you know, we had plenty of time to get to know them. Um, and the thing that I remember, um, you know, is that they would just continue to call and say, and I would continue to say, I don't have any updates. And they're like, that's okay. We can just talk about the weather for now. <laughs> um, and they just wanted us to know that they remained engaged. Um, and I thought that that was really helpful. And the thing that I share with everyone is that um, as a partner, 
where we're effectively married, you could say that today. Um, they, they were the same person that we dated um, prior to signing. So the character, um, all those things that you look for, you know, whilst dating um, held true, you know, at, you know, to this day. Yeah. Interesting. Did They are proximate to you um, just down the road. Did that play a role at all in your decision process or their interest? And, and, and with retrospect, has that been a good thing or, or would a little more distance be helpful at times? Well, it's funny. I, I probably underwrote it in the beginning as a bit of a negative. I was like, wait a second. Like, you know, do I really want someone, you know, my partner, you know, you know, five miles from my office? But um, no, it's been it's been great. Um, it's absolutely been great. So any concern that I might have had, you know, it was a very minor concern um, and the ability to, you know, to, to grab a quick breakfast or coffee, you know, with them, um, you know, in, in a very easy way. Um just to talk about issues uh, has, has been great. So, I mean, the key, look, I'm, I'm a big communicator. I, I try to be a really good partner. Um, and, you know, the ability to, to address any sensitive subject in a 30-minute coffee has, has, been, has been a big positive. Yeah, for sure. I can see that be helpful. And, and the, you mentioned that communication is key. Uh, so, that's a good thing. I'm curious, when you, when you did the transaction, what did the – ownership structure look like post deal? Did they buy minority, majority? You know, how was the interest in equity ownership within the rest of your firm? Um, did you have other enthusiastic partners who were really jazzed up about this or was there some apprehension about uh, the new structure? There was, there was uh, a lot of jazzed up. People were very excited. Um, to execute our, our management buyout um, and very excited about our new partner. And I can share with you that I sought professional advice uh, from a consultant uh, on ownership structure and ultimately ignored them. Um, and it was a big deal to ignore them because the recommendation that I got um, from this, uh, this, this firm was to limit the ownership to five or six people max. Um, and I felt uncomfortable with that. Um, I felt that um, we had some people who were, were really integral and valuable to the organization. Um, and I, I wanted to be able to create a very inclusive environment economically. Um, and so I ignored them. And we ended up creating you know, the opportunity from a blank piece of paper to invite you know, 30 plus people into ownership. And I kept in the back of my head the rough number, and this is really rough, but the rough number of about one third of our, our employees will be partners. About a third might be aspirational partners someday. Um, and a third may, um, you know, may, may just enjoy their time with us and, and continue to, 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 to move on without becoming a partner. Um, and I don't know that that math is right, and I'm not, it's not a dogmatic formula by any stretch, but um, I was very thankful to uh, have the opportunity to trust myself that um, limiting ownership to just a, a handful of people um, would have been the wrong alignment of interest based on what we were looking to create. Um, as it relates to uh, the first part of your question, um, but, you know, the management team um, wrote a check. Um, we all wrote checks to buy the firm. Um, we used a little bit of leverage 
but it was very modest. Uh, I'm not a big fan of leverage in businesses like this. And so we might have been able to have done a, a levered management buyout without a partner, but it would have boxed us in every corner possible. Um, and so I never wanted to do that. Um, and so we brought in Level Minick, who was in a position to write a check that was larger than management and through incentive structures and alignment and, you know, a little bit of sweat equity, um, able to, to get, you know, the, the ownership to about where it is today, which is about 50-50. Um, you know, in terms of marginal economic splits on a fully diluted basis, you know, going forward. Um, and I think that's that's worked well uh, for the organization. And I think given us the ability to use the currency of the firm, uh, we used it uh, to make one acquisition uh, back in, in 2019. Uh, we acquired a, a firm. Uh, our private real estate debt team. Uh, and we've also been able to use currency uh, as a way of attracting people uh, to the to the organization, retaining people, um, promoting people, um, uh, as as well as, um, you know, just creating that overall alignment structure that I referred to earlier between different, you know, product strategies that, that that's the it's the glue that binds you know, all the different teams together uh, because carry is also, you know, a portion of carry is also brought through the organization. So about half the carry, well, not about half the carry ends up basically going through the house and then half the carry ends up going, you know, specifically to the product, you know, to the product teams. And I think that model has held up extraordinarily well. Yeah, that's terrific. I mean, you know, we're big believers in employee ownership and in being bound to the equity of the firm in promoting teamwork and 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 a focus on the well-being of the company and not your own specific silo or interests. And finding that balance is important, right? I mean, you can't have it be too diluted. Um, I'm curious, you're only five, six years in with Level Menick, so maybe it's too soon. But using your rough third, 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 have do you have an internal buy sell that can transition equity among the employees, and have the third of aspirational owners perhaps been able to start participating? So what's worked, I think, even better than I expected, Brad, is that um, we've had we've had some retirements. Um, you know, people who are you know at the end of their careers, these were real retirements, um, where we were able to recycle um, a decent amount of that equity um, and be able to reissue to, to some younger people. And in some cases, it might be, um, let's say, younger people who could, um, that we might grant equity to or that we might issue and sell equity to. Um, but the, the recycling um, of equity is an incredibly important long-term initiative um, in order to create durability of a, of a business. Um, so you've got to have the ability to, to have that equity ultimately, you know, stay within management and be reutilized. And, and I'm very thankful that we've been able to do that so far. Yeah, that's great. And I'm sure that you have an eye on the horizon that at some point, Level Minic may need an exit. Maybe they find a way to stay on, or maybe you, you know, have to think about the other side of that. And do you have early thoughts on that, or, or you know, is it kind of a we'll figure it out when we get there? 
Well, I've, I've shared this uh, with 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 lots of folks. If I could sign a document and have Level Minix stay on for the next you know ten or fifteen years through the end of my career, we've had such a, an enjoyable experience with them that you know if we could get that document to me by the end of the day, I'd sign it um, because they've been a terrific partner. But you know the reality is that that we are um, in a, a fund structure and we'll ultimately need to you know provide some type of liquidity unless there's something else that comes along that on their side, you know that allows them to extend that you know extend that liquidity into the future and I don't want to speak for them as to what what might be up their sleeves in, in terms of in terms of liquidity options um, but a they've been a terrific partner B there's a reality that that um, that in, unless there's some you know some plan B you know plan a is that there will ultimately be some type of liquidity event um, you know that uh, that will that will be necessary um, to recapitalize the company and you know, I'm not afraid of that. I'm, I look forward to it. Um, I look forward to, you know, to basically being in a position to provide that capital back to, to Level Minic with a big, you know, grin on my face and a, and a hearty thank you for what they have, have provided, you know, to the organization at a critical point in time and separating from Bank of New York and, you know, and, and getting, you know, allowing us to continue to grow over the last, you know, you know, six years. Um, so, um, those options, you know, I, I think are, uh, are, are, are pretty vast. Um, and I will share a Jim Minnick quote with you, which is that um, successful companies have lots of options. Um, and I'd like to think of us as a successful company, and, and I think we'll have lots of options. Yeah, that's fair. That's a good quote. Nice way to look at it. And I think it, it, they have played an important role in what you've been able to accomplish. Um, I think it's a great story of buying yourselves out and um, being able to embark on this path. Um, I'm curious, just changing gears for a minute, and we, we'll, we'll wrap up in, uh, in a few minutes. I just want to get your perspective on, on a thing or two. What did you learn from COVID, both in terms of running your business and real estate in general any any takeaways that have come out of that that have changed your the way you think about the world or running a business I haven't thought about covid in a while which i think we should all be blessed that we don't think about it as often um, as we did at the time um, I, I think the first thing is is just how proud i am of our team and you know so you know, Brad, I've been here for 31 years, and um, we've never had an existential risk like this outside of 9-11, um, which I also remember quite well. Um, and this team, you know, comes together unlike anything I've ever seen. Um, we had, you know, two a days, um, you know, morning, morning, you know, morning management meetings and um, end of day management meetings. And we did the same thing that lots of firms did. And I think this was true for many, many, many firms, probably most firms. We adapted rapidly to a work from home environment. We cared for one another um, in, in a way that um, is outside of the scope of normal you know, time periods. There was a great degree of care. Um, that, that people had for one another. And we innovated during that time period. Um, we didn't just sit back. We actually innovated. And one of the things that we did is we recognized that the IPO market for private real estate companies you know, would effectively be shut off. We didn't realize it would be shut off this long for the public REIT market. Um, but we ended up going to clients and saying, we think there's going to be a really terrific opportunity to 
help capitalize some of these really terrific privately held companies that want to go public but are pushed back a couple of years, you know, let's form up some capital, put some clubs together uh, and go hunting. Um, and so our entire strategic capital group basically came together in the first few months of COVID um, because we didn't just sit back. You know, we felt confident in our capabilities really quickly, right? Things weren't falling off the, the bus, um, you know, doors weren't flying out of, uh, out of airplanes. Um, we had, a, we had a, a confidence in ourselves and our ability to say, what can we do that's new and that's innovative? Um, and it, 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 the innovation that we had was, it was amazing. We, we, we updated our databases on the read side. We did, you know, we did COVID scores and then, you know, you know, frankly, by June, uh, of 2020, we were doing vaccine scores, which basically meant it was just a quick rating system, right? Ask the analyst scale of one to 10, um, your company is going to do poorly, you know, um, you know, because of COVID, um, or your company is going to do well because of the vaccine and we were able to incorporate those into decision making um, COVID was one of our best alpha years ever um, from a you know relative to benchmark so um, yeah I think we learned that uh, you know, when we're tested you know we, we have a lot of care for one another and we can also be innovative yeah interesting um, I'm also curious about your view on the size of your organization in the industry landscape. So I've, my thinking's evolved on this a little bit, um, but I'm curious as to yours, you have consolidation and scale for some see that as the be all end all small specialists. You know, you, you've certainly at the size you are, um, you know, hopefully knock on wood, you know, don't have to worry about existential risk the same way a small firm, small asset base, single engine plane might have to worry about. But I'm sure it's something that goes through your mind, keeping the organization resilient and being able to take advantage of opportunities and where you fit in the competitive space. So I'm curious what your thoughts are. And this was absolutely critical to our thinking um, when we did our management buyout. So it's easier if I'm using hands, but I know this is audio only. Um, we, our industry is is defined by the way that we define it is uh, a barbell. Uh, at one end of the barbell, you've got the very, very large firms um, that are, you know, corporately owned. You know, whether it be Blackstone or, or some of the insurance companies, you know, Prudential, you know, Brookfield, etc. And on the other end of the spectrum, as you described, a great number of small firms that are typically characterized by being founder-led, single strategy, um, and may be light in regard to. Uh, succession planning may be right, uh, maybe light also with regard to uh, to thinking about alignment of interests and um, and capturing margin long term and building a platform. They 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 tended they they tend to all look about the same. They've been they've been successful entrepreneurs who have difficulty moving to the next level, um, and. Center Square is squarely in the middle uh, between these two these two you know spheres at either end of the barbell, um, and we like it that way. Um, and we like it that way, even though it's a little bit vacuous. Um, we like it that way 
because I think we we have defined ourselves as a platform, a group that can do more than one thing at a time. Uh, we invest heavily in thought leadership. We invest heavily in building relationships of trust and being uh, a, a a real partner with our client. Um, we have a big enough balance sheet that we can, you know, invest in our GP without having to syndicate out our GPs. Um, we've got distribution capabilities, you know, not just domestically but 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 globally, um, and and we can also innovate and create new things um, and incur the the margin compression that goes along with that without putting ourselves at risk. Um, that we've got too much margin compression. Um, now we can't do everything. We are limited in resources, um, but we can, you know, we can we can do certain things that make us feel like we're innovating and growing um, as an organization. And I think as a consequence, um, we are in a position where there are times when we can actually look at you know those big 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 players. Um, as potential partners, um, where our skill and our expertise in a particular, you know, vertical um, is so deep that um, they recognize the value that we bring, and so rather than seeing us as a competitor, they can see us as a partner um, because they're, they're they're substantially larger than we are, right? Some well over a hundred hundred billion of, of of equity in real estate, and the small groups, um, you know, have for a long time, you know, wanted to. You know, to effectively grow into platforms, but have failed to make the investments. And in some cases, there might be groups there that are um, real targets for us to potentially acquire. Um, and so rather than thinking of the small groups as this, you know, annoying, you know, large group of potential competitors, you know, going after LP capital, we can look at them as eff effectively as a large pool of potential um you know, groups that have their own expertise that Center Square doesn't have uh, that we could you know, potentially look to acquire uh, and, and merge into our organization. So I think that's how we fit. Um, and our objective is to, you know, is to transit this this vacuous middle um, at a speed greater than, you know, the small groups and at a speed greater than the, the big groups. Um, so that's how we, we think of ourselves. I think scale for the sake of scale or trying to keep up with the, the big players or, or play in the same sandbox as the big players is problematic. I think trying to do too many things for too many people is a, is a recipe for mediocrity. I think the fact that you know what you're good at and what might be complementary and help you grow across, across that vacuous metal at a greater rate than either end of the barbell. Um, I, I think that's that's plausible, and I, I respect what you have done in terms of building the organization and, and the position that the firm has in the in the space. So I'm grateful for you and your time sharing some of your insights and your perspectives. And, and we could probably talk for another hour, but I think I've already overstayed my welcome. So I, I appreciate your patience and uh, I'm glad you joined us. Thank you. Brad, really appreciate the relationship over the years uh, and uh, you know, thankful to Rosemont for inviting me today. So thank you very much.